Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, good to see you all here this morning. I'm so thankful that you all are uh, with us. If we've not met yet, my name is JP, and I uh, would love the opportunity to get to, get to meet you uh, later on um, at some point. Uh, so thankful to be able to uh, come together, sing songs together, uh, hear God's word together have communion together, gives an offering together, uh, but then now being able to dive into God's word together. And as we are continuing our series called Share Your Style, this is our second week in a six-week series looking at different ways that people, um, that we've been created to share our faith with other people. That not all of us are going to be the Billy Graham or, or the, someone who's in a huge auditorium or a huge stadium and just preaching uh, the gospel. In fact, some of us might do it better through a one-on-one conversation and building relationships. Some of us might be better at doing it through serving and having that open the door in order for have, to have people ask questions. Some of us, it might be more the idea of being able to just share our testimonies and recognize that we just want to proclaim what God has done in our lives. And for some of us, we're able to just be really direct. And that's what we spoke about last week, this idea that direct evangelism may come across as being in your face, but the motivation is to help people meet Jesus face to face. And so we all have different styles. Uh, you can be yourself and still share your faith and have an impact. However, we do want to remind you too that you don't have to be someone else completely, but there are times when God might want to stretch you. And so you might be created to be someone who shares um, through relationship, interpersonal relationship, and you build relationship with them. But like we talked about last week with the Trevor Hoffman picture, there might be times when you need to be direct like a closer and just make sure that people are clear about where they are with their faith and that they would cross that line into believing in Jesus and entering his kingdom. And so we want to show you the styles and the ways in which that God may have created you, but also make you aware of all the different styles so that in case God needs to stretch you in a certain moment to give you boldness and to give you the warmth to share with someone you love or God puts on your heart, that you'd be prepared to do so. And so this week, we're going to dive into uh, the intellectual style, which is kind of the idea of apologetics, uh, loving God with our minds, not just with our hearts, and being able to dive into that together. So before we go any further, I would ask that you would join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are here in this place. I thank you for each person that is here and each person that is listening online later. Lord, I pray that they know how much you love them. So much that as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 earlier, that you love them so much that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And so I pray that that love permeates each and every one, each and every one of us in a true, meaningful way. Lord, I pray as we dive into your word that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, impactful way to everyone uh, who is hearing my voice, and I pray that you would be glorified. Thank you that we can love you with all of our heart, we can love you with all of our soul, we can love you with all of our strength, but also we can love you with all of our minds. And so we dive into your word together now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I went to uh, UC San Diego, there was a time in which I'd just become a Christian. And I remember um, it was in a huge auditorium. There's probably about 300 students or so. And, and I remember just this idea in which the professor, um, it was the first day of class. We're going through syllabuses, syllabi, syllabi. Um, and we're able to just kind of talk about what the week looks like or what the, the quarter looks like. And I just remember this time in which the professor, with a mocking and, and kind of 
snide tone, and I don't even remember what the class was, I don't remember what the content was, but I remember him saying, does anybody in this room, room of 300, does anybody in this room actually believe that the Bible is true? And it's one of those questions that you kind of hear, um, you know, there's movies called like God's Not Dead or other movies in which they kind of address this idea of a, of a teacher at a big university that is questioning the Bible because what we have seen kind of develop as a society, as a culture, is this idea that if you are believing in Jesus, that you are not intelligent. Or this idea that, well, you know, people will say, but, but I believe in, in science and, and reason and facts. And you say, well, I believe in science, reason, and facts too. I believe in the God who created science, the one who gives us what true facts are, and is the one who is the author of reason. But the difference is, is that the society looks at, the culture looks at this idea that by believing in Jesus, you kind of have to check your brains at the door. Now, this, this kind of came to fruition this past week for me because uh, my friend Jeremiah, who I promised him I wouldn't show his picture again, because if you were here two weeks ago, he was the one that had more hair than me. Um, and so he helps out with our, stu our student ministry, our youth ministry on Thursday nights. Um, but he was one of the ones, he and my friend Brett were the ones I mentioned to you as people who really helped me to learn what it looks like to lean into your faith with your mind and be able to have answers for questions and to study apologetics and to look at what that means to defend our faith and be able to not just check our brains at the door. Well, he was sharing with me something on Facebook and he tagged me in it. And it was this question, it was a short video um, that talked about these two different questions um, about what would happen, um, basically about the idea of it, have this question be something that people can ask. And based on that, it'll help them just to maybe be open to the story of faith. And so what I want to do is right after that video, there was these, there's this post that was right below where he had tagged me. So the two questions that it was like a cross-examiner that was in this video who came to know the Lord through cross-examining uh, the gospel and, the, and Jesus. And so the first question is, what do you think happens when you die? This person who I blocked out for, for um, privacy says, I don't know. I don't know how to know. I'm not worried about it. The second question was, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? If I knew Christianity were true, I wouldn't have to believe it. People don't believe things they know are true. Okay, what now? And I want to keep that up for a second because this, the answer to his second question is one that I think is so ingrained in our culture that we, in order for some of us who've been created to learn to love how to read, learn to love how to be able to find different arguments to defend our faith, we have to kind of know going into this and into any conversation we may have that this idea that if I knew Christianity were true, I wouldn't have to believe it. People don't believe things they know are true. It's this idea that truth and belief are mutually exclusive, that there is no interplay between them. And it's this idea that we have to always, yes, we need to have faith. Faith, the idea of being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But we're not just doing a blind act of the will. We're not turning blinders on and turning our brains off once we follow Jesus. Because there is, again, science, reason, truth in all of this. And we've seen people like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or Ravi Zacharias, people that have went, gone out to prove God as not being true, but through the evidence have started to recognize the claims of Jesus to be true. 
And I have a, if you're interested in this kind of study, uh, one of the Bibles that I have is the Apologetic Study Bible. It's a really great resource. It's this resource in which you have uh, different verses that might be miscued, and they call it twisted scripture. And so there's a verse, and then it'll take kind of how other belief systems or other people might take that. Um, and so it allows you to kind of have a defense or an argument ready. Um, but what I love is in the introduction of that book, it says this about apologetics. It says, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologio, meaning defense or answer. Accordingly, Christian apologetics is the practice of giving reasons that support the Christian faith and responding to the objections raised against it. Apologetics contributes to the restoration of a view of the Bible as a source of knowledge of its subject matter, as opposed to a source of true belief to be accepted by a blind act of the will. So again, it's this idea that faith, belief, and truth are not mutually exclusive. They are things that they play together, they intertwine, and that we can approach our faith, not with, well, I don't know, that's just what I was told, but with actual sound reason and arguments and, and defenses of why we believe what we believe. And so, with all of that said, our main point this morning is the idea that faith in Jesus doesn't mean we have to check our brains at the door. For many, it's through their brains that they will walk through the door of faith. So faith in Jesus doesn't mean we have to check our brains at the door. For many, it is through their brains that they will walk through the door of faith. And for those of us, those of you in this room that might have the apologetic or sorry, the intellectual style of evangelism, there's an incredible example of that, that you recognize that it's through people's brains that they can come to the door of faith, that they will recognize and respond to a rational argument rather than an emotional appeal to follow Jesus. And so we see an incredible example in Acts chapter 17 with the story of Paul in Athens. If you have the church Bible here, it's on page 1722. Uh, if you have a Bible app or brought your own Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 17 around verse 16. Because we're going to take a few moments to look at a biblical example of the intellectual style. A biblical example of the intellectual style, and we're looking at the person of Paul. That Paul was known for being an intellectual, and he was zealous about his faith. In fact, he gives an idea of his own testimony a bit in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely, intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Jerusalem beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. That Paul was someone that was known for being zealous for his faith. But then he talks about how he served under Gamaliel and, and other rabbis that were really well known, that in order to be a rabbi, you had to be the best of the best of the best. And in order to follow and learn in the dust of the rabbi of, of someone of that caliber, Paul was someone who was incredibly intelligent. He was incredibly intelligent and he was zealous for his faith. And so how does this play itself out in the story of Acts chapter 17? That he's in Athens in a place in which there were... Um, statues of gods all over the place. And so he's trying to get to know people, to have dialogues, to have conversations with people in hopes that it would open up the door to point people to Jesus. So we're going to start in verse chapter, or sorry, chapter 17, verse 16. And the point for you here is that, that Paul cared enough in his heart to try to change their minds. People care, or Paul cared enough in his heart 
to try to change their minds. That it wasn't like one of those where we could have intellectual arguments, but here's the thing, if we don't care enough about the fact that people who don't know Jesus are gonna spend an eternity without Jesus, and we think that, oh, it's fine, they'll figure it out, or oh, it's fine, you know, they'll, they're just on their own way, or whatever it is, if we don't care enough in our hearts to be cut to the heart when people we care about are far from God, then we're not going to be willing to even have a difficult conversation to approach something with that may create conflict because we would feel that it's not worth the conflict. Yet, Jesus felt like it was worth the conflict he had experienced by becoming sin so that we might know no more sin and have right relationship with him. And so if he experienced that peacemaking role, may we not just fall for a false peace, but a true peace in which we are able to address difficult things, but to do so with love so that people far from God would draw near to him and become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So we see this idea that he cared enough in his heart to try to change their minds. Acts chapter 17, just the first couple verses, 16 and 17, say this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I want to focus on just this idea that he was greatly distressed, that it pained him to walk into a place in which there were statues, of different idols all over and recognizing that as he's walking down and he sees these different statues of these different idols, every one he would see, every idol that would be put up as a statue and worshiped and, and paid attention to, every one of those is one that pointed people away from Jesus, from the truth of who Jesus was. That they would look at different gods and try to worship this god or this goddess or this one or that one and it would distress him and pain him to see that there was only one true God. And yet these people who looked and appeared to be so desiring to be religious and to honor the gods, yet they were missing the point of the one true God. That we could look and we could walk down our malls, we could walk down our streets, we could go online, we could watch TV, and there may not be statues of idols that are tangible and physical that we could look back and, and be able to say, oh my gosh, we're so distressed, but all around us permeates the idolatry that is within our nation. Whether it's to elevate celebrities or athletes or musicians and put them up as idols to the point where... We, people worship them and follow them and, and try to have all they can with them, whether it's just the systems that are in place, the systems that teach us that we have to do things on our own, that we have to make it, that production or, or performance of how well I do is the only determining factor of being having any value at any point at all. That there's these things that we, people would walk down, and if Paul were to walk down our streets, I imagine he would be distressed that so many people who are maybe trying to find hope and identity in something. We're following idols, and they're missing the one true God. Because if we become more focused on being right than being loving, if we don't care anymore because we have the knowledge and we keep it to ourselves and we don't care what happens to others, if we're more focused on being right than being loving, then we are not loving people right. And we're, not, we're missing the point. The next thing that we see is verses 18 through 21. We see that Paul, as an example of someone who has an intellectual style, he studied the culture so he could be prepared to reach it. 
He studied the culture so he could be prepared to reach it. That I think in our day and age, it's so easy for us to see the culture as purely bad. And so we want to isolate ourselves completely from it. Yet how can we reach people in it if we are so isolated from it? Now, am I saying that we lose who we are in our relationship with God, that we lose sight of truth? Absolutely not. But Jesus didn't look down at the world and say, well, they're too far from you, Lord. I'm not going to go down. He went in and he was incarnational. He went and became in flesh to change the world. May we be incarnational. May we go into a place that is a dark world. But as Paul says in Philippians 2, that we would shine like stars in our example. Verses 18 through 21 of Acts 17 say this. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then in verse 21, there's a parenthetical statement that says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul then, through his conversation, through being able to speak with the Jewish people and the God-fearing Greeks, he was able to create enough of a stir at least, or people were at least interested enough to bring him into the Areopagus, the Areopagus, or also known as Mars Hill. And it was a place in which they were able to talk about ideas. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to hear ideas. And so Paul had an open door to start sharing about Jesus as the one true God. Now, I want to take a moment just briefly to look at the Epicureans that were mentioned there and the Stoic philosophers. Both of these were mentioned. That the Epicureans, they're defined as people who were practical. They liked material things. They believed that the gods weren't involved in human life, that people should pursue pleasure, and that there was no afterlife or judgment according to the Apologetic Study Bible. And then also in the study Bible, it talks about this, that the Stoics, that's the Epicureans, materialist, practical, God's not involved, that they just want to pursue pleasure. The Stoics were pantheists. That's the idea that they believed in all different types of gods. They believed that God was the soul of the universe, and they were determinists to believe that virtue came in enduring life's hardships. If you've heard anything about um, Buddhism, some of the ideas of the idea that suffering is what brings Life and suffering is this idea of being able to come into full understanding through suffering. So Epicureans, the idea that gods don't, aren't involved, pursue pleasure. And Stoics who believed that everything was God, that God was in everything, that there was no one true God, and that, you know, suffering, we just have to make it through this hard life. I wonder if those two sound familiar to any people that we might know in our culture today. Paul had to study the idea of the Epicureans. He had to study the ideas of the Stoics. He had to know the culture he was trying to reach before he was able to reach it. Imagine going into a place and having no context, but trying to just start explaining and preaching, but if you don't know where the culture is, you don't know where it's been, you don't know what stories, you don't know what's values, you don't know where it's going, you don't know where it's been, how are you able to show who Jesus is without it just being skewed by our American idea of what that looks like? Because cultures in and of themselves, there's not a right or a wrong one. They're all different, but Jesus can permeate all of them. So 
The next point that you have on your notes there is that Paul pointed people to Jesus by identifying redemptive analogies in that culture. Redemptive analogies that Paul studied the culture in order to be prepared to reach it. And in so doing, he's able to find these redemptive analogies in that culture. Now, redemptive analogy was a a phrase that was newer to me before this past week. Um, And so I want to take a moment to explain it, that a redemptive analogy is the idea that embedded in any culture, there is usually some practice or understanding which can be used to demonstrate the gospel. That even for people who may not have that don't even know about Jesus, that there's something, this a redemptive analogy within their culture that God had put eternity in their hearts to the point in which there was some part of their culture that someone who would learn their culture in order to be prepared to reach it would be able to find this redemptive analogy or this way of pointing to the one true God so that we could see come to fruition the desire in Revelation 7 that every knee should bow from every tongue Every tribe, every nation would give praise and glory to God. So the idea, the reason I just heard it this past week was a book called The Peace Child by Don Richardson. So Peace Child by Don Richardson. This is a really interesting read. I really enjoyed listening to it. Don Richardson and his wife, Carol, were ministers to uh, Netherlands, New Guinea. So this was before uh, it became Papua New Guinea. And so this was in the 60s or so when they started their ministry. And he felt called to go, they felt called to go and to reach the Sawi tribe. And there's a picture coming up of him preaching to the Sawi or, or getting to know the Sawi. And he shares in his book kind of this journey of, of learning their language and, and trying to find out their culture and recognizing the deceit and re- learning all about it. And he realized this, the, how different the culture was to the Judeo-Christian background when he was talking about Judas betraying Jesus. But... In the Sawi culture, treachery is seen as a virtue. And so in their culture, the better you are at being deceitful and then they call it fattening a friend for the, for the slaughter. It's this idea that you make a friend feel like you're, they're close, they're safe, and then you would slaughter them. So when he first shared the story of Jesus and Judas, the desired effect did not happen. His desired effect was to recognize how evil Judas was and how Jesus was the victim. But the Sawi tribe ended up saying, wow, they, they, they acknowledged that Judas was a hero. So then he goes to this point of saying, how do I, how do I even handle this? What do I do with it? So later on, he found out that because that treachery was so prevalent in their culture, that true peace felt like it was impossible. Because anytime two different tribes or people groups would would feel like they would want to maybe make restitution or have peace so there's no more warring, the fear would always be that the other side would be fattening the friendship for slaughter. But he found one thing that broke past that. That the picture that you're seeing here is what would happen when two tribes decided that they truly wanted true peace. Not, not this kind of peace that they felt was false, but a true peace. What they would do is that one, pers- one father from one tribe and another father in another tribe would give of their son and would bring it over and it was called the peace child. That because now they would give of their son and they would give it to the other tribe, that then they would say, I'm going to give you my son and I'm also going to give you my name. So the person would then be called by the name of the father. 
And it's this idea that that was the only way that true peace would be brokered of the giving of a beloved son in order to make a way for peace. And so this is something that that was going on for years and generations before Don Richardson and his wife Carol went there to do ministry and be missionaries. But he caught on to that idea of the peace child. And he said the peace child in the Sawi culture was only good, or, or sorry, the binding agreement between two tribes was only valid as long as that peace child was alive. So the peace child tripped and fell and, and went into the river and drowned, then no longer was there peace between them. Or, or once the child grew up, maybe there'd be a couple, you know, maybe a decade, two decades of, of peace, but once that child died, the peace agreement went away. And so what Don Richardson came to the, the statement was, was that God, the father God gave his only begotten son as a peace child. And he would quote Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and prince of peace. And he said that the God, our father God, his peace child lives forever. So you can have peace with God because he gave his son and you can be called by his name and have peace forever. And he, so he has talks about these redemptive analogies, these, these things that are ingrained within cultures that if we study them enough to be prepared to reach them, we can find them and use them to point to God. And so as, let me read Acts chapter 17. We're going to take a little longer chunk, 22 verse 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Notice he sees that open door to an unknown God, and he's going to use that as a launching point into sharing about Jesus. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so we see that Paul looked at this statue to an unknown God and said, let me explain to you. You think you're worshiping some other God that's one of a myriad pantheon. Let me tell you of the one true God, the unknown God. You don't know his name, but he knows you and he sent his son to die for you. And the background of that altar is that that altar was, as story goes, 600 years prior to that, the city of Athens was experiencing um, a great plague. And so someone called for this guy named Epimenides and he came in and they said, 
You know, we, we know that you have a connection with the gods, and so someone must, some god must be mad at us. And so as the story goes, there were different sheep, and he had some that were white sheep, some that were black sheep, and he said, he had them say that uh, whoever the god was, that whichever one laid down, that they would save that one, and the other sheep that they would sacrifice, and so through the sacrificing of these sheep, apparently afterwards, there was healing. And so what he said, or the, the plague stopped. So what he said is like, we should make a statue in the pantheon to say to an unknown God, because we don't know this God's name, but he rescued us. And so we should worship him. So Paul, when he sees to an unknown God, he knows the story. He knows what's going on. And then in Acts 17, 28, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. If you'll notice there, if you notice in your Bible, for in him we live and move and have our being is in quotation marks. And then as well, as some of your poets have said, quote, we are his offspring. The we are his offspring, that, that second one is from the Stoic philosopher. Remember the Stoics over here? The Stoics were the ones that were pantheists, that kind of believed all, God was all things. He, there was a Stoic philosopher named Eretus who said that. But the first one, for in him we live and move and have our being, was a quote from Epimenides, the one who built the, or suggested that to an unknown God, altar was made 600 years before. So Paul had learned enough about the culture to quote the person who encouraged the, the statue to be made right there and said, he looked at the, the statue, he looked at the history, he learned it and was able to say, hey, you worship, you're very religious, you worship an unknown God, let me make that un-God, unknown God be made known to you. Let me show you who Jesus truly is. And so does that mean that all of it was that that unknown God was the same God in their mind that they were worshiping him. They didn't have an idea, but it was something that happened generations before that Paul, as an intellectual style of evangelism, was able to learn about that. He cared enough in his heart to try to change their minds. He learned the culture in order to be prepared to reach it. And he found something in their history that could help bring redemption to their culture, to the people. So as we close in the last few minutes we have together, I want to address, as we did last week, I want to address those of you who have the intellectual style. If that's not you, I still ask that you would pay attention because this is an opportunity for you to either get to know those people that have an intellectual style. It helps you to get to know them better. It helps you to know how to partner with them if your style is different. And if you had a chance last week, we had uh, 30 copies of the, uh, an assessment to kind of help you learn which style you are. And if you had a chance to do that, then you know which one you are. If you didn't, we have some more copies at the greeters table uh, that you could still do as you leave this morning. But I want to address a strength, blind spot, caution, suggestion, and encouragement for those of you who have the intellectual style. Strength. For people who think that checking their brains at the door, you're logical, analytical, and inquisitive style will hold the key to that door. Your logical, analytical, and inquisitive style will hold the key to that door. That people will want reason, a reason to believe. And if they come to a church service, and maybe some of you in this room are, are analytical and, and logical, and so you come and if someone were to just, if we were to just to keep saying, believe in Jesus, don't, don't even worry about fit, like knowing knowledge or reason or anything, that's all different, it's all bad. If you were to come and say, well, you can't hit me with emotional appeal because my brain, I'm more of a thinker than a feeler. How many feelers do we have in this room? 
How many thinkers do we have in this room? All right, so it's usually about half and half. And so we recognize that some of us, our faith is inspired by content and thinking and having our minds expanded. And so for those of you who have an intellectual style, for people who need a thinking, rational idea of understanding who Jesus is, your logical, analytical, and inquisitive style will help open that key, or will hold the key, rather, to that door. Blind spots. What good will it be for you to win the debate, yet lose the person in the process? That sometimes we can get so caught up in our arguments and how well we did with arguing our point of view that we realize that A, we're not listening to the other people's point of view, so we're not learning and addressing where they are, but B, we might walk off and say, ooh, I won that argument, and yet we failed to win souls in the process. We might say we won the debate, but if we lose the person, we must recognize that that is not what we are called to do. We want to know, have a defense, but not to the degree in which we push people away. We must learn how to have a defense for our faith without getting defensive and pushing people. The caution. Remember that studying apologetics is a means to the end of pointing people to the gospel. So for some people, if you're, I, I'm, I love being able to learn, I love being able to read books, and I love being able to just keep getting knowledge, but what I love, for me personally, is I love getting that knowledge so I could share it, because I'm just a teacher at heart. I love being able to share what I've learned, including the peace child from three days ago, but figuring out, seeing, oh Lord, it's almost like your timing's perfect, and you could be able to tie it together. But this idea of not just having, if we just study, if we're intellectual style, that, and real quick, if you don't have the intellectual style, it doesn't mean you're not intellectual. Just to be really clear, it doesn't mean that only 16.6% .6 of you are intellectual and the rest of you aren't. And yes, one divided by six is 16.6 .6 repeated, so that's intellect, never mind. Um, no, but this idea of remembering that studying apologetics in and of itself is a means, it's part of it, it's a tool in order to help someone come to know Jesus. The point of it is not just for our own knowledge to be built up because as 1 Corinthians says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So without the love, we could just be puffed up of, oh, look how good I am with these arguments and look how clearly I am able to eloquate. Uh, That's not a word, is it? No. Uh, to be eloquent in the midst of it. It's this idea that we could think that filling up our own minds will substitute God filling up our hearts for those who are lost. So remember that studying apologetics is not the end. It is a means to the end of pointing people to the gospel. Suggestion. Spend as much time getting to know people and asking about their beliefs as you do preparing to defend yours. That don't do a study in apologetics purely in a vacuum. Don't do it in a place where you don't even have a, you, you study apologetics and you study these rational arguments, but if we don't have the relationships built with people to even have these conversations, then again, we're filling up our minds without being able to utilize the way that God has created our minds in order to reach those far from God. And so in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer or defense or apologia, as we talked about earlier, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. 
Do it in a place where there's a relationship, that you're asking the questions from people. You're getting to know people. You're not just spouting arguments at people. And so we see this in the Apologetic Study Bible talks about how, as 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us, our apologetic must be prayerfully presented, having set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. Also, we must present our reasons for belief with gentleness and respect. So to be most fruitful, our defense of the Christian faith must be offered under Christ's lordship in humble dependence upon his spirit and in the context of loving and respectful personal relationships. Again, we want to spend just as much time getting to know people, asking the questions as we do preparing to defend our faith that I was in a leadership uh, class recently, and one of the things they had you do, they had all of us ask, a, they called it a normal person, not that Christians aren't normal, but I mean, you get it, uh, a normal person interview, and it was things like, what do you think happens when you die? Do you think there's a purpose for your life? And, I, and things like, you know, if, G, if God were true, what question would you ask him? And so it's just purely at asking the questions. And, and I did it with one of my close friends I've known for my whole life. And, and some of his questions were really heart-wrenching for me. But it was one of those where the whole thing is I don't get to defend. I don't get to fight back. I don't get to say, well, what about this and this and this? It's more purely asking the question to see where people are. And then being able to recognize how we can reach people who have those different places and those different mindsets. So remembering to spend as much time getting to know people and asking about their beliefs as you do preparing to defend yours. And then finally, the encouragement. Some people will always reject emotional appeals to follow Jesus. And this, if you have the intellectual style, this is where you come in. My previous pastor at my previous church would say that maybe only 8 to 10% of people will come to Jesus through an apologetic, intellectual, um, rational conversation. And, and that's his guess. That doesn't, that's, not a, a, that's not statistically proven. But the idea is that it may not be for everyone, that there might be people that God tugs at our hearts, we're cut to the heart as we saw in Acts 2 last week, and that changes everything. But there will be people that every time they come to hear a sermon or every time they hear someone talk about Jesus, if it's purely emotional, they're going to say, well, I don't want to just follow emotion. I believe, and th these people would be saying, I would believe that belief and emotion is separate from truth, that they're mutually exclusive. So this is where you, someone with an intellectual style of evangelism, can bridge that gap. You can hold that key to open that door for people to recognize that believing in Jesus doesn't mean we have to check our brains at the door. In fact, it is through their brains that many people will walk through the door of faith. So I want to close with this idea that I read another book. Um, this was probably two years ago. Uh, and if you've not read it yet, I would encourage you to read it. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi grew up in California, grew up uh, in a very, in a very strong Muslim home, and he got to the point where he met a guy named David at college, and David would read his Bible at the same time Nabil would read his Quran, and so Nabil started to ask questions to David, and David would respond in relationship, but he would respond with truth, and, and then they would read one thing, they would read back and forth, and over the span of years, there was a relationship that had been built, and over the span of years, Every argument that Nabil had against Christianity started to fall to the wayside. And every argument that Nabil had for Islam 
started to fall to the wayside. And he got to a moment in which, over years of this conversation with his friend David, he recognized that he was seeking Allah, but he found Jesus. And it's this beautiful, I mean, I'm giving the Cliff Notes version. I would still encourage you to read both those books, Peace Child and this Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. But the idea remains that Nabil was one of those that was reached for Jesus through intellect. And then he started serving in Ravi Zacharias' international missions. And he started to write a few books. And he started to be able to share the gospel. And a few years ago, in 2017, uh, Nabil ended up going home to be with the Lord after having a really strong bout with cancer. But in the life that he had, he was 34 years old. He's my age now. But he went through this journey intellectually, but it cut him to the heart. He came to a relationship with Jesus. He, knows where he, he knew where he was going, and he impacted millions of people who also might approach Jesus through the intellect. So he's a great example for us to remember that faith in Jesus doesn't mean we check our brains at the door. It, for many, it's through their brains that they will walk through the door of faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir within our hearts this morning, Lord, and even more as in light of what we're talking about, that you would also stir within our minds, that we would love you not just with our hearts, but with all of our soul and with all of our strength and also with all of our minds, that through the renewing of our minds that we're able to be transformed into Christ's likeness. Lord, I pray that you would stir within us the care of for people enough in our hearts to try to change their minds, to walk alongside them, and not to do it in a pushy way, but to have dialogue through conversation, through relationship, with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3 says. But we would build that relationship, and we would have those conversations, and we'd be able to, through the mind, be able to reach people who feel like right now that following Jesus is just checking our brains at the door. But Lord, we know that you are the God of intellect of reason. You are the way and the life and the truth, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see redemptive analogies all around us. I pray that you would help us to have um, eyes, hearts, and ears open to what you would have for us, and that we would learn, not just for our own knowledge, but to share that knowledge with people who need to come into knowledge of a relationship with you and what you did on the cross, Jesus. So, Lord, we love you. We're thankful for who you are. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You know, I hope that um, even if you don't find yourself to be someone who, who resonates with the intellectual style of, work, of uh, evangelism, that one of the things that is important for us, for all of us, is to look for these redemptive analogies for people. And, and it could be something that we see in, in movies. It's something that we see in literature. It's something that you even see in comic books. The idea that there might be a story that has really resonated with us in which maybe someone has come from a faraway land or someone who has been raised up and, and in the moment in which they came and they brought goodness and peace and joy to those around them and yet they knew that the best way for them to help the people that they love was to lay down their life for them in our movies, in our 
literature and our comic books are filled with those kinds of stories that we look and we see, oh my gosh, that movie resonated with me because the hero laid down his life for the people around him. And so maybe for you, you start, we start to just look at, okay, how can I share the story of Jesus Christ who came from heaven to earth to, to show people the way to live, that he lived a perfect life but died a horrible death because as our true hero, he laid down his life for the people that he loved. And he rose again so that that peace child would never, ever fade away, that the power would always exist and that we can bring people into right relationship with Jesus. So I pray that as you leave this morning that our eyes will be open for ways, for redemptive analogies and open doors to invite Jesus into our conversations through relationship with gentleness and respect. And in so doing, you might be the one that holds the key to help someone you love walk through the door of faith. And imagine the rejoicing that will happen here on earth when that happens. And imagine the rejoicing that happens in heaven when that happens. That we get to be able to share eternity with those we love. Because we cared enough in our hearts to learn to change their minds.